Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. So, over the last 12 months, what has happened? So much has happened. Um, this is Sunita Hinduja. Sunita is the company stage manager for Sixth Musical in London. I've been running there for about a year, a year and a half. I had only started on the production in January of that year, so actually like December 2019, uh, January 2020. So I'd only been with the production for two and a half months. And sort of end of February, we started to get loads of sickness. They were dropping like flies and... Every week was a bit of a struggle to get enough people on to do the show. And it was a lot. Like, it just felt it felt worse than any flu season or any anything. This is Ghost Shows, a new four-part series in co-production with Freelancers Make Theatre Work. My name's Adele Thomas. I'm an opera director. Episode 1. 16th March 2020. It was the first day of technical rehearsal when the pandemic shut us down. I was directing a new musical for National Theatre Wales due to be performed in a miners' welfare hall in the Welsh Valleys. When you're rehearsing a show, it's fair to say it often feels like the world outside the rehearsal room just disappears. But in the weeks leading up to our opening night, it was impossible to ignore one thing. The coronavirus. In our final week of rehearsals, the rumours were circulating that this was not going to go away, that this was more serious than anyone had thought. How this would manifest itself in our little world, however, we had no idea. So in the car, on the way to our first day of technical rehearsal, the choreographer, associate director and myself wondered, how long into its run could this show possibly last? Three weeks? Two weeks? By tea break, we wondered if it would play beyond its first weekend. By lunch, we wondered if the show would ever see a live audience. By dinner, we were closed before we'd even opened. Five weeks rehearsal, six months planning, years of writing and composing, a live band playing 27 songs, a five-day fit-up in the venue, two hours of animation, over 150 costumes, an entire team of dancers who'd learned to roller skate for the show. Gone. It felt like standing next to an implosion next to negative space. It's a year this week that theatres across the country closed their doors for that first time. I'm making this podcast series because I've heard hundreds of stories like mine of these vanishing acts, these ghost shows. I'm still fascinated a year on by these shows that were dreamed and conceived, sometimes even rehearsed and teched, but never lived in front of a live audience. This may seem small in the grand scheme of things, and these stories really just scratch the surface on how the pandemic has affected an industry of hundreds of thousands of freelancers. This is our untold story. These ghost shows are a glimpse into this unique, unwelcome, strange in-between moment in our history. They're shows that exist only in a gap, a gap between the life we lived before the pandemic and the new world of lockdown that, a year on, we still find ourselves floating through. 
Over these next four episodes, I'm going to talk to a range of freelance theatre workers, like Sunita, who've experienced this strange, creative, suspended animation over the last 12 months. What happened to the energy, the ideas, the art, the creative labour that went into the conception of these ghost shows? What is the emotional and even spiritual impact of losing them? If a show has been planned and cast and ready to go but never made it to the stage, did it ever really exist? You want me to cry, basically. I would love you to cry. (laughs) This is director Maria Arberg. Absolutely. I mean, for me, it was... You know, I felt like this was the work. This was the work that I'd been waiting to make for yeah. for my whole career. You know, I, I I come from Sweden and I came to the UK to, to go to drama school in 1999. Mm. And I've always wanted to make work that has an international component. You know, that's always what I, what I wanted to do. And I felt mm. like this was kind of the moment when I could kind of bring my whole lived experience and my professional experience and and uh, and my passion to to a really big project so it was really personal for me so I had lunch with Erica Wyman who's the deputy artistic director in late 2016 I just had a baby we you know Brexit had happened Trump just got elected it was you know it was like global chaos and and personally quite quite a a funny time Uh, and we started talking about a season of European work that sort of interrogated and and celebrated European theatre making practice um, at the RSE as a kind Mm. of response to to these global events. The result was Project Europa, not just one play but an entire season of work. It was scheduled to open at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon in April 2020. It was a site-specific production that consisted of seven new short plays that we'd commissioned by wow. playwrights around Europe. And was a youth theatre project that was directed by an international director, a symposium in collaboration with the University of Birmingham, and uh, a, a photography exhibition that we'd specially commissioned for the season. So it was it was a big program. It's huge. It was huge. Yeah. Yeah, so it was. we'd worked on it for a really long time. I was actually working in a pub in London and it was a Friday night and it was half seven. My phone kept ringing and I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and eventually I came out and answered and it was my agent being like, oh, you've got Donnie's brain, you're going back up to Scotland. And I was like, this is great. Like, I'm going to work back at home, really, um, in such a wonderful city and on such a wonderful play and I love Rona. And Lauren Grace is an actor. In January 2020, she found out she was cast in Donnie's Brain, a play by Rona Monroe, which was due to open in Edinburgh's legendary Traverse Theatre in the spring that year. Yeah, I mean, it was initially a um, way back. I've, I've forgotten the, how long ago, but a long time ago. Um, and this is playwright Rona Monroe. As is the case with so many plays, Donnie's brain had been on a labyrinthine journey before it was finally fully staged, being commissioned and then decommissioned, picked up, put down again, taken to theatres in London, taken to theatres in New York. They then pass it on. They do a reading, but they don't want to do it. So they, oh, did it go the other way? It doesn't really matter. Anyway, didn't Mm -hmm. happen. And somehow not quite finding the right theatre to land in. And then finally, years later, 
the traverse decide they want to do it and I get very very excited because it feels like it's finally found yeah. its home and it's finally found the perfect director and then you get in the rehearsal room and you go and it's finally found the perfect cast and the perfect designer and movement oh my god it's brilliant and uh, then of course we were all locked down and uh, it went no further here's Maria again we're talking about last February just before she started rehearsal I had just been in Thailand. So we travelled back via Bangkok right at the end of January. And there was a little bit of a kind of buzz around Mm. it at the time, you know, and we completely ignored it. Mm. And you sort of noticed that people were wearing masks and stuff and, you know, it was a thing. But obviously by the time, you know, we got back to Stratford upon Avon, completely forgot about it, completely forgot about it. When you live in London, it kind of feels like the epicenter of the world. And I remember one day a headline came through and it was like, oh, Islington is the first borough for it to have a confirmed COVID case, which is where I lived. And I was like, ah, okay, maybe I should look into this. And then headed up to Edinburgh, kind of like, oh, it's going to be all right. Like, it'll be fine, I'm sure. I'd been reading some stuff and I'd been like, okay, this, this seems quite serious, but surely, you know, surely this can't get so bad that the whole world is going to be in yeah it's not going to happen <laughs> jessica hung hang yon is a lighting designer she was working at the royal exchange in manchester literally up a ladder lighting the play rockets and blue lights it was due to open on the 13th of march no like that can't surely that's not possible that would affect so many things that's not no but i guess yeah it's also kind of denial of like yeah but it'll be fine Everything is just fine. Well, like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. Is this genuinely the first time that you haven't seen each other since the show closed? Yeah, since that that fateful day. Actor Ruby Mae Martinwood and director Ottry Banerjee. At the exact same time that Jessica was deep into tech rehearsal, Ruby Mae and Ottry were arriving at the Royal Exchange for their first day of rehearsal on West Side Story. I mean, I was so excited. So, so excited. I mean, West Side Story, the music's amazing. The, the, it's someone who comes from a more dance background. Like, just the dance is just so captivating and powerful. And especially as a female, like, you, you feel like you're really challenged and thrown into it rather than sort of tiptoed around it. We were all saying on rehearsals on the day one how amazing it is that we're doing something that's so relevant at the moment and we all feel like we've had something to say and West Side Story is definitely one of those shows. Autry was the show's associate director. Over the previous year, he'd been working on preparing the show for rehearsals. We had done this version of West Side Story once before in Manchester, the year before. It was the first ever version which didn't use Jerome Robbins's original choreography, which for any musical theatre fans out there, you know, you know, it's iconic, <laughs> iconic to the creation of that show. We had brilliant new choreography by Alita Collins. Um, we were really keen to break down that like preconception of it. It's fi- figure out who these characters were, who these young people were, and how they moved, and how they might move in the city, and how they might move with this sort of threat of violence behind them all the time, or difference and conflict. And, and one of the things that I was excited about with the remount was that we were, we weren't going to stick exactly to the letter of what we'd done the year before, but we were going to make it again with these new brilliant people who were in the room with us. And as Ruby Mayer has touched on, I think it was a way of really bringing it to life in 
in the 21st century at a time when young people have felt and felt so disenfranchised and have felt like the older generations have been making decisions for them. The week before, they'd both been looking forward to starting a whole new rehearsal process. Well, for me, I was working a normal person job for a little bit, (laughs) a muggle job. I thought, oh gosh, I better get fit because (laughs) I'm going to be put through my my paces in a few days. I was moving back up from London because I was living there at the time. Um, So sort of organising all that, which was quite exciting getting grips with a script, making sure I understand what's going on. I always find the first day of rehearsals really nerve-wracking. I feel like everyone's in a sort of, yeah, getting to know each other kind of phase. But to be honest, I I didn't know if I was going to make it. I woke up on the Thursday with like a sore throat and it turned out just to be a sore throat. I was like, ah, God, what does this mean? We all walked into uh, into the room. I remember everyone was sat down with like, sat down waiting to go in. We were just sort of meeting and greeting the classic, a little bit awkward. Everyone's a bit, well, I was very nervous. Um, getting to know everyone, um, where you go, hi, what's your name, where are you from? To be honest, and I, I am a bit of a raven of doom, but <laughs> I was pretty certain the day of the first read through, oh. I remember saying to people, yeah, but we won't be going on, will we? And then going, no, no, I don't mean it. I'm sorry, I'm a raven of doom just because maybe I'd just come back from a trip across Europe and I'd sort of seen how other countries were taken a bit more seriously. Okay, it's a global pandemic. It's already got here. You know what happens in a pandemic. And also maybe the experience of having had Donnie's brain cancelled so often before, (laughs) I I was already thinking this isn't going to happen. Here's Maria Arberg again. So we started rehearsals in Stratford and we were about seven weeks in. So we had a few weeks left until tech before bringing it onto stage. So we were quite far down the line, really. It started to feel like things were coming together. That particular point is always a point when things start slightly falling apart again. (laughs) You know, you make loads of brilliant headway in the first few weeks and you start putting things together and it's all very exciting. And then suddenly you go, oh, but what is this? And what does this mean? And is this the right direction? Things were changing day to day. People were getting new texts here, here and there, wow. and relearning songs, and you know, moving choreography around. And it was, you know, it was, it was very kind of, um, yeah, it was wonderful creative chaos, really. For seven weeks there, we were absolutely wow. winning. So I kind of had my suitcase packed for four months away from home. Autry was moving his entire life to Manchester for most of the year. But I wondered when it was that he thought the pandemic might start to impact the show. I remember the theatre sending us all an email the week before rehearsal started with a sort of rough protocol for what would happen if someone had COVID or was diagnosed with COVID. But at that time, I don't think anyone really knew the severity of it or knew really what it was. Well, I was coming to the end of an 18-month contract with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, and we were on tour. Emma Baggett was assistant director on the Royal Shakespeare Company's production of As You Like It. Um, and then this nasty bug spread through the company like wildfire. <laughs> and now in hindsight, I think, oh, maybe we were super spreaders <laughs> touring the UK. We were playing to some really big houses, you know, and do you want to be stood in a room with an unknown virus with, I don't know, 
800 people in the auditorium. And now we know that big, big events with lots of people are possible super spreaders, you know. We were kind of carrying on as normal because we didn't know that much about yeah. it, I guess. I guess, yeah, everyone was kind of like, we don't really know what this means or yeah. what this is. So everyone kind of carried on as normal. We now pause for a short word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Ghost Shows, episode one. So I was in Newcastle. I think COVID was starting to sort of feel quite present in the world at that point. And people in, within the company started to get really anxious, rightly so, about this, this sort of illness that we didn't know much about. Hand sanitizer had been in our kind of vernacular for a few weeks. The stage management team were brilliant, you know, loads of hand sanitizer. They'd already sort of started cleaning touch points and all that. I think everyone just thought it would pass and that it would never actually infiltrate our world that much. We had a brilliant first week in Newcastle and then towards that end of that week, um, a couple of people decided that they didn't want to go on. So we had a couple of really complex understudy situations that were to do with the fact that people were anxious about their safety or the safety of their families or the safety of the people they lived with. You know, there was a such a lack of information at that point in, in how it was passed and I suppose lots of conjecture and rumour and nothing tangible and, and no facts. There was quite a gradual process of, of the company just slightly beginning to disintegrate. And I was like, no, don't be silly. Like, things are going to be fine. Maybe it'll get postponed, but it's not going to get cancelled. It's not going to get cancelled. But it was all so vague at the time that I remember, even on that first day, I don't know if my memory is the same as yours, Ruby, but I remember thinking, oh, maybe I think we can do this and we're going to keep going until someone tells us that we can't anymore. Um, I remember saying to another cast member, Femi, I don't think this is going to happen. <laughs> and we were talking about it for ages. We were just saying that it didn't feel real. And I, I just had a feeling that we would not be on the stage. And I think it's because the West End had, they were kind of ahead of us a little bit when it came to like shutting down and whatnot. And we were kind of watching everyone else closed down and we were kind of continuing on so it just kind of gave me a bit of a funny feeling that we weren't really gonna be performing but I definitely had the same feeling of feeling like I was going to come back in three weeks. Things were sort of changing at such an hourly rate I mean I remember on that Monday it was sort of you'd get a Twitter notification and another theatre had decided to shut and it felt like sort of the lights were going off all across the country. It feels like everything happened in sort of a bit of a blur. I think there was a sort of keep calm and carry on spirit, but it just sort of felt like valiant comrades were falling one by one. I remember thinking I felt very grateful to be in that space on that day, I think. Even doing that little bit of character work we did on that first day and the little bit of dance at the gym, like it felt like 
more than ever it felt like a bit of an escape I think you're right it did it did feel like an escape it we I felt like we were in a little bit of a bubble and I don't know why I felt like I was in a bubble but I think everyone was so positive and sort of optimistic and slowly watching other companies like drop off like flies there was this feeling of like oh we're fine we're secure we're I don't know we're a small cast in Manchester like we're not we're not gonna stop looking back at it now I had just absolutely no idea what was going on (laughs) and I know none of us did but it just felt like like there was there was nothing you could do about it regardless um and like you said I just felt like I was waiting for my phone to ring and my agent to go are you going home I just remember us all learning the beginning of the dance of the gym on the Monday I remember taking a video on my phone and putting it up on my <laughs> on my Instagram Aww. and being like we're back and then <laughs> <laughs> I I remember very well the day the show got cancelled because it was actually my birthday, 17th of March last year. This is Gemma Smith. Gemma was the company stage manager for Johnny's Brain. And let me just quickly say that stage managers are the unsung heroes of theatre. They're the people who keep everyone and everything on track right from the first day of rehearsal through to closing night. I think at the end of the first week of rehearsals, there were rumblings and obviously no one really knew where this was going to go and what was going to happen then on the Monday. You know, things were starting to get serious and we were, you know, obviously other companies were starting to close and cancel shows. And we had an emergency company meeting where our producer came up to see us and, you know, she didn't have any answers herself. Boris wasn't exactly taking it very seriously himself, you know, so this this sort of lack of information was sort of, Paralyzing everyone and paralyzing everyone's ability to make decisions, I suppose. I remember sitting in the offices in the in the Royal Exchange watching Boris Johnson's announcement on the computer that the theatres should shut down. But it but it was so vague because he wasn't ordering anyone to close down. But I remember, I remember all of us watching as if it felt like John F. Kennedy had died. How I imagine it must have felt like people huddled, huddled around the TV. Right at the beginning, there we we sort of thought, oh, this is just rehearsals are just suspended for a bit, and at some right. point we'll be able to pick them up again. You know, yes, of course, because and we thought that it would last about three days. Well, exactly, we, it was fine. We'll just like do do stop it for a bit, and then we'll get back to it. So you know, the first little while we were kind of trying to work out if we could rehearse via Zoom, and I was trying right. to. You know, actors were still learning lines. And then and then gradually, of course, we started going, oh, maybe, maybe we have to move the project a little bit. So there were some conversations about, like, pushing it further into the future. And, and then it went very quiet. Um, that was, I think, the hardest bit. We were about to do press night. Um, so oh it was the God. day before press we got we got told that we are not gonna yeah we're not gonna be opening to an audience that was really difficult because it was like a real we were like at the finishing line we were like we can see it 
um and we were like oh yeah you know it's really coming together we're really starting to find we've really found it you know we feel like you know as a team we've gotten to where where we need to be or you know and and then just to be told the day before you know it was really like it yeah that was really tough it's the final stage it's the final part of like the puzzle coming together and it being like well we've done this together as a team as for ruby may and autry they never got the chance to get that far and unfortunately we only managed to have the one day really yeah it was the 16th of march 2020 west side story managed one full day of rehearsal on its second day they shut down Around Tuesday lunchtime, we found out that that the show wasn't happening. Roy and Bryony came down to the rehearsal room and basically informed everyone that the show's not going ahead and everyone should make arrangements to go home. So then what we decided to do, which I'm very, very pleased that we decided to do, was that we decided as a final goodbye was to bring everyone who was still in the theatre, the whole staff of the building, into the rehearsal room. and. The whole ensemble learned somewhere very quickly <laughs> in record time. And then the whole company sang somewhere. Somewhere we'll find a new way of living, which felt like a particularly poignant thing to do. And everyone was in floods of tears, including me. I think the show lives in that. I think that was the show in that moment, in that, in that place, in that time. It was a good monument, I think, for other shows that had had to be cancelled at that time. So I'm really pleased we did. I don't know how you feel about Ruby May, but I'm really pleased we we did it. Um, yeah, I am really pleased we did that. Um, especially looking back the the next day, I made the mistake of watching it on the train. <laughs> I mean, it was it was nice to have that physical memory there. It's still on my phone for me to look back at now. But um, I definitely say that the show is. The show was alive. We we created a bit of art and um, we met some great people and we we shared something and also even though there wasn't you know a physical product as such, we all put in a lot of work. Even though two days doesn't seem a lot, you you get a lot done in two days just because it's not a product. You know you still put so much into it. Yeah. And it really meant something, I think, to the people watching that performance of those two songs. I think if, as Peter Brook says, all you need for theatre is like a space, a spectator and an actor. <laughs> like we had all those three things in, in those 20 minutes, however long it was. And um, I think singing a song like Somewhere, which is about utopia, which is about a world where things might be better, which is about a world where things people might come together in a new way of living. It felt just right, like it felt like a sort of marriage of everything that people needed in that moment. The company was also testament to Bernstein and Robbins and Sondheim and all the brilliant people who wrote, who made that show all those years ago. Listening to Autry, it's striking that there couldn't be a better song than Somewhere for this moment. A song that's about enduring something we thought was unbearable and coming through pushing through to the other side in which there's something far more beautiful and utopian waiting for us. I'd love to know what you both um, did next. So once you were told, once you sung somewhere, 
um, Ruby May, what were your kind of next moves? Um, I stood and looked around and had absolutely no idea what to do next. I mean, we must have been pacing around the room. I mean, I was pacing around the room doing absolutely nothing for about an hour with them asking us to politely go. Um, and I was just like, oh, I don't know if I want to go. I want to like attach myself to the building. So yeah, I got on the phone to my mum and told her that we're coming home and then started looking at train tickets. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I didn't want to leave. I think like what Ruby May has said about being sort of, I felt like I wanted the building to hold me. Like I wanted to be like swallowed, swallowed into its like concrete embrace. But actually it's so interesting that the, because you were so early on in the process that it's yeah. so much more heartbreaking somehow. I feel like it's more punishing because you get that little glimpse of what something could be, like it would have just been a vision in your mind. You wouldn't have had that actual physical glimpse. It's like the seven stages of grief, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And also because like nothing like this has ever happened in any of our times. So it's, it's really difficult to comprehend the extent of kind of what that what that means um so yeah I was, I was aware of it but yeah just just I guess I guess in denial and I think everyone was um or they were just aware of it yeah it was funny my DSM she she had a hunch that we'd ne- we wouldn't be coming back and she bought the whole company goodbye presents she was giving them out that Saturday and I was like oh don't be silly don't be silly and I do remember I was in the green room in Newcastle watching the show on the on the monitor on the, and listening to it on the show, really. And the thought popped into my head. I was like, is this the last time that I'm going to see it? Or will I be back next week? I, I'm, I'm sure many people have said the same thing. I, I genuinely thought this will be fine. We're literally back in three weeks, maybe a month max. We did a wonderful dance routine on that last day, though, because I think I think because we knew that we were going to get cancer, and I'd brought the dog in, and it was, and I remember thinking, I, I I need to bring the dog. I did need to bring the dog in for practical reasons, but I also remember thinking, I must not get really depressed and start crying and be a real downer. And he's like my little happiness battery, and I thought, bring the happiness battery, and then and I think everyone had the same thought, and and Caitlin, it just got us with doing these you guys did these amazing little dance routines which I've still got a video of I was looking at it before this and it was sort of like I do remember that last day as being a very very happy day but um yeah obviously still waiting on it being happy again what really strikes me about what Rona's described is that the atmosphere was really similar in our tech rehearsal there was a kind of sense of a carnival Like Rona says, the situation was so sad, but no one was willing to let the sadness overwhelm us. It's undeniable that there was a bizarre thrill to the day. The atmosphere in our show was just all the more bonkers because the show itself was crazy. There were dancers running around dressed as toads and druids and Victorian industrialists. The lighting designer was testing out lasers and the band was sound checking with the crew and cast cheering them on almost like we were at a gig. So there was a sense of wild hysteria to the moment 
Hour by hour, the show was slipping through our fingers. But as I said to Maria, the thing that really struck me as being so incredibly beautiful was that nobody stopped working. And it was Lorne Campbell's first day as artistic director <laughs> of National Theatre Wales. He arrived in Wales for the very first time and his job was to come to us and to shut us down. Oh my mm. God. As Lorne was telling us that we'd have to shut down, people were still sewing and the band <laughs> still had their instruments in their hands. And it was just the most extraordinary thing that everybody worked right up until the end. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, horrendous, but beautiful. And then we all went to the pub and we all hugged each other. <laughs> yeah. oh no, I was just going to say, like, that, that model of grief is, is really interesting because I think, like, it is grief, isn't it? We all lost something in those days. And I think over the last year, what's happened is that we've all experienced different forms of grief and different forms of loss, like, however big and however small, like, obviously the the death of a loved one being the greatest of that. And I've, like, I've experienced that myself last year. But then also the projects and the things that we hold dear and the things that give, give our heart purpose and passion. Like, I think that grief analogy is really spot on. And I think, like, I entered bargaining very soon after denial, I think. I sort of went, I didn't leave Manchester for a day because I was like, I'm going to stay and I'm going to help the theatre. Because I'd worked there for a as the trainee I was like I'm going to stay here I'm going to like help them do online projects and community projects and maybe if maybe if we do this thing like it'll fight it off in some weird way what do you think you're grieving well I think we're grieving the work that we've already done on the project I think we're grieving the sort of the hours of labor and effort and time and energy spent and the thing that I felt like I was grieving in that room in particular was was that sense of community that I think had very quickly been established in that company of actors and I think like Ruby met from what I could see it felt like all of you had become friends very quickly because I think theatre more than most other art forms has that at its core that spirit of ensemble of community not just not just in terms of like presenting live work in front of a live audience but also like it's a group of people working together you know in a way that a film set isn't quite the same thing for example we as theatre people we need that to keep us ticking and keep us going it's hard it's hard feeling isolated from a community and a culture and a way of living that is so embedded in the way we make work you could see in the room after just one day how amazing the show would have been but also how amazing we would have been as a community of people and it was just passion and enthusiasm and different walks of life and opportunities to learn from each other and i remember looking around just thinking my gosh, this is going to be a fantastic group of people to learn from. I felt like I was mourning the potential of what we were going to be as well. I've been thinking so much about grief and I was thinking that I've got grief wrong all my life, I think. And I think I always thought that grief was about mourning the past. But actually, grief is not about that, is it? It's about the fact of the future that you thought you had. It's desire. Absolutely. It's gone. Yeah. That you're mourning it's weirdly a future. You mourn, as Ruby May so beautifully put it, potential, isn't it? It's like the, I mean, this is again maybe a slight left angle, but I've become slightly <laughs> obsessed with like grief. Yeah. <laughs> slightly, slightly obsessed with like the idea. And like, I mean, this podcast being called Ghost Shows as well, like, I think theatre is, theatre is a form that's built on ghosts and like the ghosts of characters and 
people becoming Hamlet and becoming Tony and becoming Maria and becoming Francisca. And like, there's a sort of like spiritual thing going on, which is, um, which harks back to like Japanese no theater and the Greeks. And it's all, it all sounds a bit esoteric when I describe it like that, but I do think that theater more than many other art forms has this sort of like ephemeral thrumming, weird, indefinable thing that, if it's there, it's there, and then it's not there anymore. Like, once the show's finished, it's gone. I think the fact that West Side Story in this version never had the chance to live is really sad and is and is another thing that we... Because you make a film and the film is there. Like, you, read, you write a book and the book is there. You record a piece of music, the piece of music is there. Theatre doesn't exist in that way, which is kind of what makes it beautiful, but also what has been so painful for all of us, I think. It's only alive in the present moment, and it's so strange once you've done the show, it just cuts, it's, it's literally gone. The only place where it lives, it's like in your memory, and that's, that's it. Coming up in episode two of Ghost Shows, Lockdown. Freelancers Make is a curtain call and Freelancers Make Theatre Work co-production. Today's episode is part of a series, Ghost Shows. Produced by me, Matt Humphrey. Presented by Adele Thomas. Written by Adele Thomas and Freddie Crossley. Sound engineered and edited by John Schwab. Music by Freddie Crossley. Support for this episode and original concept for the Freelancers Make podcast from Sally Beck Whitman. Transcription by Kelsey Acton. Freelancers Make Theatre Work is a community for the 200,000 self-employed theatre makers in the UK. It is currently run by a team of incredible volunteers from around the industry. Follow us at Freelancers Make Theatre Work. Please follow the Curtain Call podcast for more episodes in the series of ghost shows. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theatre community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theatre professionals, search the RISE Theatre Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheatre.org. That's theatre with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.